Hello, everyone, and welcome to Taming the Shrew. My name is Adam Gatula, and I'm an emergency medicine resident here at the University of Cincinnati. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Liz Powell and Ms. Paige Barger, to discuss cardiogenic shock in the critical care transport environment. Dr. Liz Powell was a previous attending physician in the emergency department at the University of Cincinnati with a fellowship in EMS. However, not only is she a content expert in EMS, she has now gone back to complete her anesthesia critical care fellowship at the University of Cincinnati. So for all forms of shock in the critical care transport environment, Dr. Liz Powell is undoubtedly our content expert. Next, we have Ms. Paige Barger, a nurse practitioner in the cardiovascular ICU. She is our cardiogenic shock ionotrope presser guru. And I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about the current state of evidence pertaining to cardiogenic shock in the pre-hospital transport environment. Before we get to the details of treating cardiogenic shock in the critical care transport environment, would you be able to tell us what your definition of cardiogenic shock is? So when we had originally gotten this topic, the discussion was kind of, let's talk about cardiogenic shock. But when you actually sit down and start to think about it, cardiogenic shock can be the result of many different things. So how we typically classify any type of heart failure will be the side of the heart, right? Because you can have left-sided heart failure, you can have right-sided heart failure, or you can have left and right-sided heart failure. And is it a problem of systole or diastole? And then the underlying cause of what's causing your heart failure can then lead to different types of treatments. So is this a valvular problem? Is this an ischemic problem? Those things are going to be treated both upfront and downrange really differently. So for most of the patients that you guys are going to be picking up on air care, the typical presentation is going to be you're going to an outside hospital. You're probably going to an outside hospital ICU, though you may be going to an outside hospital emergency department. So the likelihood that you have some type of data is going to be pretty high. And it's taking that data and having more information about what is causing this patient's particular type of heart failure. And then we brought our guest speaker, former ED nurse, Paige Barger, subject matter expert in the CVICU. So Paige, you know a heck of a lot more about this than I do at this stage in my PGY6 year. So do you have any other kind of pearls of wisdom for us on different types of heart failure, how those can present with cardiogenic shock or things that you look for when you're walking into a room? Yeah, so the way I like to keep it very simple is kind of dividing heart failure into four categories. Warm and wet versus the patient that's cold and wet and cold and dry. Those drive therapies pretty dramatically. And as we go through the different hemodynamic parameters we'll review, I'll kind of chime in intermittently with who who would be warm and wet and what they would look like on the Swan-Gans catheter and how that would drive management. Yeah, and I'll tell you guys too, you'll see this in the CVICU all the time. For the guys that have already rotated through, you've seen this. And for the guys that will rot- rotate through, you will get to see this. Walking in and just actually touching a patient is one of the first things you will see just about anybody do that walks into a room. So anybody that knows me for more than five minutes and has worked with me in the emergency department knows that I don't particularly enjoy feet. But I've probably touched more feet the first month in that unit than I did in my entire time as an emergency department physician. So just even putting your hands on a patient before or as you're starting to look at numbers on a screen is going to give you a ton of information. 
So in addition to some of the classical presenting features of cardiogenic shock, what are some of the more nuanced signs that might cause one to raise their suspicion that a patient might be in cardiogenic shock? These patients can honestly look different depending on the side of the heart that, uh, that you're dealing with and depending on the ideology, right? So guys in really advanced cardiogenic shock, they're going to be ice cold to the touch. They may be volume overloaded. They may be hypotensive. So those are all just kind of initial things that you can just look for. And those are things that just when you're walking in a room initially, that's probably about 15 seconds of information. Um, you can do your you know, jugular venous distension and things like that. But oftentimes when you go in to see these guys, especially if you're picking them up in an ICU, they're likely going to have a lot of lines in. So typically when I'm going in to assess a patient, I'm looking at an initial set of numbers. I'm putting hands on the feet. I'm collecting a lot of different information from that. And while you're putting your hands on their feet, you can also see if they have any type of pitting edema. Those are just some basic things that I look for, which again, that's, you know, a couple seconds and you've got a ton of data. Obviously, listening to lung sounds, these patients truthfully will sound super wet on exam. And that that congested cough that may have initially been thought to be infectious may actually just be heart failure. So these people sometimes are often masked with antibiotics for a week or two before they present in their fulminant cardiogenic shock. Other things, I haven't made, been peeing a lot. Other classic end-organ failure indications are things that we look for on presentation that may really be thought to be related to something different, and in all actuality, it's just heart failure, true and true. Right on. So both based on the evidence and anecdotally what you see, in 2018, what are the typical causes of cardiogenic shock? And what should we expect the causes to be in our patients? Sure. So ischemia is going to be our number one patient population that we see. So this could be anything from our STEMI alerts that you go out thinking you're picking up a real stable STEMI that you're bringing back to the cath lab, and then they end up either not being so stable or decompensating when you en route. So definitely ischemia, especially in the right population, right? Your older patient with risk factors. However, we can see these problems in our younger patients. So think about our IV drug users with valvular problems, okay? So they can have this acute onset heart failure. Postpartum cardiomyopathies can also happen in younger patients. So just keeping that on your differential when you see the shock patient, even if they're young, less likely, but this could still be a cardiogenic cause. We talked a little bit about valvular abnormalities as well. Overdoses on your beta blockers, your calcium channel blockers, um, can cause a little bit of a mixed pictures because those guys can get you know some vasodilatory effects as well. But you can also see a cardiogenic shock in those folks. Uh, Paige, what am I missing? I think the one thing that we've seen a lot of in the, probably about the last three years is the viral myocarditis. Mm -hmm. These people who present with this kind of very vague prodrome that you can't really put your finger on, but they're in cardiogenic shock and they're 18 and otherwise healthy. These are the people that we're finding actually have a variety of viral-related myocarditis issues that often go undiagnosed without cardiobiopsy. So it's really important to think of some viral and uncommon causes of cardiogenic shock. Yeah, that's actually really great. And we were actually just having this conversation the other day kind of offline about these viral myocarditis patients. They're typically young, and they typically don't have a ton of other health problems. So these guys can look super, super sick, 
but can actually be really salvageable patients in spite of how sick they look. So I think we'll talk about some more mechanical advanced interventions later. But in these guys where you guys are going out to outside hospital, you see this young, sick kid at the bedside with cardiogenic pulmonary edema, febrile, and this viral myocarditis is on your differential. Those are actually guys that we will oftentimes be a little more aggressive with. So that should just raise your spidey sense to kind of phone a friend, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. In the critical care transport environment, our patients have often had procedures performed at the transferring facilities prior to transfer. When transferring patients in cardiogenic shock, we might find ourselves transporting someone with a pulmonary artery catheter. Would you be able to explain to us what a pulmonary artery catheter is and what decisions we should make based off the numbers given to us by a pulmonary artery catheter? This is actually really great stuff in the critical care transport environment. So, you know, when you are going out to pick up these patients, you really are an extension of the hospital and an extension of the ICU, right? So our toolbox needs to be a little bit more expanded than the typical emergency physician. I would consider myself a very typical emergency physician. And I think anybody that, again, has worked with me for any short length of time would agree on that. However, I have really found a lot of knowledge gain and information from being able to interpret some of these pulmonary artery catheter numbers. So I think it's actually really important for us and in what we do to have a little bit more familiarity on this than your typical EM doc has. So these pulmonary artery catheters will be placed most commonly, I would suspect you guys are going to pick up a super sick patient in a cath lab at outside hospital. Oftentimes, they'll be placed in the cath lab. However, you guys may end up in an ICU at an outside hospital where either this has been placed in the cath lab and they've gone back to the ICU or they were placed in the ICU to give them specific information. So it's going to be that interfacility transport. I don't expect you guys would run into many of these from your ED to ICU transfer. So what is it? It's typically a larger kind of think Cordis 8-9 French Usually IJ, though they'll do them through the subclavians too. And we do do them through the groin, uh, but obviously that's kind of third line uh, preference. So then after that, the swan catheter is placed, and this is going to be giving you guys some information about cardiac function and filling. All right. So starting off, and we can debate CVP and utility in another lecture. We won't go there. We'll just talk bread and butter stuff, right? So I'm at the bedside. I roll up with my stuff. I'm touching somebody's feet and I'm looking up at a monitor, right? When you look up at the monitor and you see CVP, given the location where the catheter is, the central venous pressure is essentially going to be giving you your right atrial pressure, right? We use right atrial pressure as a surrogate for right ventricular and diastolic pressure, okay? So assuming that there is no tricuspid valve abnormalities, it's basically a gauge of filling pressures. So in the handout that you guys have accompanying this, you'll have a bunch of pressures that are going to be accompanying this. So with your CVP, you can think you're normal somewhere in the five-ish millimeters of mercury range. So when you look up at your monitor and you see a CVP of 25, you can assume that this patient, again, unless they have some kind of atypical valvular abnormality, has some elevated right-sided heart filling pressures, okay? And I'm just going to go over the bread and butter ones like you guys are looking up at a monitor, but if you guys want to go more in-depth take the blue pill and really go down the rabbit hole on this, you can read the handout, okay? So just like CVP is looking at right-sided filling pressures, the pulmonary artery web pressure, wedge pressure is going to be looking at your left-sided pressures. So this is sitting in your pulmonary artery, and it's going to be the surrogate for left atrial pressure, which, again, minus a mitral valve abnormality, 
is going to be a surrogate for left ventricular end diastolic pressure. So CVP, right side, uh, pulmonary artery wedge pressure, left side. And again, if those filling pressures are elevated, you can assume that this is kind of an elevated filling pressure, probably volume overload type of state. I will also tell you guys a little kind of trick of the trade is in patients that develop acute cardiac tamponade for various reasons that have a uh, PAC in place, when you look up at the monitor, you'll see an acute uh, equalizing of your CVP and your pulmonary artery wedge pressure. So that's just a little pearl where if you look up in a monitor and you're like, wow, those numbers are exactly the same. That would be another plug for ultrasound. Takes, what, two seconds to do a subxiphoid view and see if that patient has a big effusion. So that's just a little pearl. And again, I'm not going to go over all of these guys, just the bread and butter ones. So you look up, you can see your CVP. You can get a wedge pressure. And likely the nurse at the bedside or the cath lab will have those numbers readily available for you. Another huge one for you guys is going to be your cardiac output or your cardiac index, which is going to be body surface area adjusted. So cardiac index is basically going to be letting you guys know how the heart is squeezing. So when we talk about cardiogenic shock and when we talked about it earlier, we're talking about a poor squeeze. In these patients, unassisted, so they're not on any type of extrinsic support that we are providing them, a cardiac index less than 1.8 should make you guys really suspicious for a primary cardiogenic shock. If they're on rocket fuel, like dobutamine or epinephrine that we'll talk about later, then you're looking at more of a number of 2.2-ish, just kind of gestalt, but just think low cardiac index, probably a problem with a primary cardiogenic problem, problem with squeeze. And I think really when you guys look at the parameters, we, we talk a little bit more in the paper about systemic vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular resistance. Again, those are numbers that hopefully the bedside nurse or the cath lab would have available for you guys. And all of these numbers together can not only provide you with how severe a cardiogenic problem is, it can actually help you differentiate between disease processes. So is this a hypovolemic problem, a septic problem, a cardiogenic problem? That's what these numbers help you do. And there's a there's a table in the uh, in the handout as well that accompanies this that kind of breaks that down for you guys a little bit more. So it can be both diagnostic in terms of what is causing this patient shock, but it can also help you guide therapies and determine how severe this patient's heart failure actually is. And I think as we're assuming the transport of these cardiogenic pa shock patients with a Swan-Gans catheter in place, before you put a lot of stock in those numbers, it's real easy in the hullabaloo that transpires in the shock patient who's deteriorating and preparing for transport for that ever-critical transducer to be moved and you to get fake news. Um, it is not uncommon for you to find those transducers down at the patient's hip, and those numbers now mean nothing to you. So just be sure that those are leveled to the phlebostatic access before you make big clinical assumptions based on the numbers that you see on the monitor. All right, we just went over a ton there. So let me break this down. If you're transporting a patient with a pulmonary artery catheter, the first thing you need to do is check the location of the catheter. It can move and give you false readings. Secondly, Central venous pressures equal to right-sided pressure. Pulmonary artery wedge pressure is equal to left-sided pressure. Lastly, what we care about is the cardiac index. In patients not on rocket fuel, it needs to be greater than 1.8. In patients on rocket fuel, it needs to be greater than 2.2. Now that we've covered the basics of cardiogenic shock and how they are numerically represented by a pulmonary artery catheter, 
Let's move on to talk about the progression of cardiogenic shock and what our numbers are going to look like as it worsens in this patient population. When patients have left-sided heart failure, which I think is always easier to start with the left side and then we can work through right-sided heart failure. But usually when patients present with left-sided heart failure, they're volume overloaded on that left side. They are not ejecting appropriately. And so what we'll first see is an elevation in their pulmonary artery wedge pressure. So, you know, it's not uncommon for these people to come up from the cath lab or when you're picking them up and you hear that they have a wedge of 25, 30. And so now we know that their volume situation is high um, and that their squeeze is low. And you have to remember a normal wedge is only 6 to 12. So they're usually quite elevated. And a lot of times these people are able to maintain their stroke volumes at first, um, but once that starts falling and their wedge continues to rise, we'll see them start to really become progressively more and more short of breath as that volume backs up from the left into the right. Once that stroke volume really falls off, they are trying to compensate for their lack of stroke volume and their increase in heart rate. So tachycardia ensues. And if you remember, a lot of these people have, may have baseline heart failure, and if they are managed appropriately as an outpatient, they should be on a beta blocker. So sometimes this response is blunted initially, especially as an initial presentation, um, and that oftentimes can hide what's actually happening for a short period of time. But usually their tachycardia uh, is able to save them for a little bit of time. And once the tachycardia is no longer able to maintain their status, that's usually when these people start walking in the door. That's when they're saying, I need help and I need help now. Um, by this point in time, they've progressed to the point where their cardiac output as a whole has fallen off. And their filling pressures are now elevating dramatically uh, and their cardiac output is falling. So their cardiac index as well is obviously falling. And this is where we'll see patients classify into those different categories I talked about earlier, whether someone is warm and wet, cold and wet, cold and dry. So these people with their elevated filling pressures generally are gonna be in your warm and wet category or your cold and wet category. Your warm and wet patients, these are generally patients who haven't progressed to a loss of cardiac output yet. They have those high filling pressures. They're walking in, their legs are warm, but they have that productive cough. They have that pitting edema. They have the ascites. They're, they're starting to progress. The cold and wet patient has completely progressed in his cold to touch, has that low cardiac output, low index with that high wedge. This is the person that needs an inotrope now and they need a diuretic now. And sometimes that can be a really hard clinical decision to make because on their initial labs, they may have a pretty dramatic acute kidney injury from their cardiogenic shock and it feels real dirty to give this person a diuretic, but it is the right thing to do when they are cold and wet. So don't be afraid if, if you're, they're really struggling and you're in a situation to give them diuretic because it's, it's absolutely the right thing to do. I think the, the cold and wet patient is... That, that should scare us at Outside Hospital because these guys could even still potentially be talking to you. And we saw a couple in July that had just ice blocks for legs, and they're talking to you. And that should really terrify us because that, that patient is truly sick, 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 sick. So those are patients that you guys really want to be doing things for before you even necessarily get them to the receiving hospital. And I think that's really important. And that's the difference between the load and go mentality that we have a lot on the street, right? You're on the side of the road, and the best thing for that patient is to not be on the side of the road. 
But if you have a patient in the cath lab, in an outside hospital ICU, by us coming to them, the purpose is to do what they need emergently for them. And in this particular situation, what they may not need is an extra 45 minutes to get to the hospital. What they may need is someone to essentially take care of them at that bedside, stabilize them a little bit further, start the things that we're going to talk about in a second, and then put them on a stretcher and bring them to the hospital. And I think that's a really important distinction. And I think sometimes it's hard because we get in the, you know, let's let's get our times looking good. Let's get this guy off the, the side of the road. But you're, you're cold and wet cardiogenic shock patient. That's the guy that decompensates in the back of a helicopter in about 10 or 15 minutes. Awesome. So up until this point, we've covered the basics of cardiogenic shock. We've covered pulmonary artery catheters and the meaning of the numerical values represented within, as well as the progression of cardiogenic shock and what worsening decompensation of cardiogenic shock looks like in these patients. You mentioned staying in plane at transferring facilities to better optimize these patients' medical care en route. Would you be able to tell us about what we have to offer and what we bring to these patients at the transferring facilities? It's a great question, and I fear that five years from now, you guys will listen to this and things will have completely changed, and uh, that's okay. But here's, here's what we know right now. So what I think you should do is think about medicines in two different types. So you have your vasopressor agents, and you have your ionotropic agents. And I think it's important to think about those. Now, is there some crossing? You know, does epi cross into both of those paths? Sure. But I think it's important to think about those as two different agents that we give. So to start specifically with the ionotropes, because this is specifically cardiogenic shock, I've got to tell you honestly, from just a pure ER doc perspective, I would not have considered ionotropes as existing well within my toolbox before I came back and did this fellowship. This is actually one of the reasons why I came back to do this fellowship, right? But as critical care transport providers, it's really important that we have some functioning knowledge of inotropes. We talked about that cold and wet patient. That's the guy or gal that gets these inotropes before you guys leave the hospital, right? Because even in just that hour, it may take you guys to be at the bedside, start an agent, and transport them. You guys actually can make that patient better before they even arrive at the CBICU. And I think that's really important. So there's no magic that I, a second-month fellow, that I'm going to do for that patient that you guys can't necessarily at least initiate before you transport them. Now, Paige, of course, can fix them just by laying hands, but... That's neither here nor there. So for you guys, if you could remember one ionotropic agent, and if you've zoned out up until this point, dobutamine is going to be your agent of choice. So it's going to be fairly quick acting, and you're going to get that additional squeeze with dobutamine. That's going to be important. So for a bang for your buck agent that you are initiating from scratch, that should typically be your guys' go-to agent, okay? Now, things to also consider with that is in addition to the ionotropic side of dobutamine, it also has a vasodilatory side just in the receptors that it works on in the in the periphery. So with dobutamine, if the ionotropic effect isn't enough to increase the stroke volume to the point that it's going to overcome that vasodilatory effect, you may not see this amazing increase in your blood pressure. So you've done the right thing. You've started the ionotrope. 
You stand back waiting to be awesome and having fixed the blood pressure and fixed the problem, and that may not necessarily be the case. So after you've started that ionotrope, more than likely, I suspect probably honestly if these guys are sick enough to fly, they're already going to be on some type of peripheral vasopressor, but you guys will want to start a presser at that particular point in time if one hasn't been started already. Um, less likely, but you may end up picking up a patient on milrinone. This will probably be a patient that has been on milrinone for some time. And just having a familiarity with that drug uh, and knowing that these patients may be on that when you pick them up, but it wouldn't necessarily be something that we would typically recommend starting de novo when you guys are flying out there and starting just kind of a new inotrope on a patient, simply because you guys aren't going to see the effects of that until the patient is back. So it's got a longer half-life. And I was really excited about dobutamine in typical doctor fashion. And I was like, start dobutamine, right? Drop the mic continue being awesome. And then Paige was like, maybe they need to know the doses and the titration rates and like all of the practical things that come with taking care of those patients. So those are in the handouts. And uh, it's, it's certainly going to be helpful to know, you know, because I would walk in and I'd be like, let's start the dobutamine at one, right? Boom, done. That's not typically what we recommend. So usually with dobutamine, you'll probably start it at five um, and then, again, you're typically not going to be starting milrinone, um, so just something to be kind of familiar with some of the titration rates, but those are all in your guys' handout as well. Uh, I don't know if you want to say anything else about inotropes. You certainly have a ton more fam with those than I do. No, just knowing that uh, if for some reason you already have milrinone on board and you think that you're in a position where a patient needs more inotropic support, that unless your transport's going to take you north of four hours to get where you're going, you're not going to see an effect of increasing that milrinone and just, or decreasing it if you were in the setting that you thought that it was causing more harm than good. It's going to take a long time for you to see those clinical effects, especially in a transport situation. Yep. So if you're, if you're a typical EM doc looking for instant gratification, dobutamine is going to be your drug. All right. Uh, so then the, the second really important part of this is going to be the initiation of a, of a vasopressor as well. And again, that is going to be important because even you do the right thing, you start the ionotrope, chances are if these patients are sick enough that you're doing these interventions, you're not going to see a ton of improvement in blood pressure just with the ionotropic support. So at this particular moment in time, our usual go-to as kind of your first line vasopressor agent is going to be levofed. So you're going to get the alpha squeeze and it has just a little bit of beta as well. So levofed is usually the next go-to when you're looking for a vasopressor. After levofed, we'll typically add on vasopressin. And the reason for that is Levofed is going to have is a catecholamine. Epinephrine is a catecholamine, right? Most of our vasopressors are catecholamines, and catecholamines can save people's lives. They certainly do them all the time up in the units. They get the people through critical illnesses. But just keep in mind that there's a critical amount of catecholamine that you can have in your body where you can start to see deleterious effects. So you can start to see dysrhythmias, gut ischemia. Uh, increased myocardial oxygen demand. So all of these things are going to be really bad in your cardiogenic shock patient. So you want to think about this from a standpoint of not just continually hammering someone with catecholamine after catecholamine after catecholamine. 
and giving them some other agent that is going to work on some other receptor, right? So that's why vasopressin is usually our second line. So if you're dialing the levofed up and up and up and up and up, probably the right thing to do in that patient because of those secondary negative effects that could really harm your patient is going to be to add a, another non-catecholamine agent, which again, second line is going to be your vasopressin. So just something to kind of consider if you notice you're starting to really crank up uh, on the norepinephrine or on the levofed, adding vasopressin is, is usually going to be your second line. How I think about it is when doctors are managing people's blood pressure on an outpatient basis, you don't just take one agent and dial it up, right? Uh, when oncologists are giving whatever chemotherapy regimens they're giving, they don't just give one chemotherapy regimen to every single patient, right? Rheumatologists, I'm assuming, give steroids and lots of other different things in some kind of immunosuppressive Adam's laughing at me right now. Some kind of immunosuppressive things, right? You do multiple different things for someone. And I think that's important is not to just hammer these guys with a bunch of catechols, especially the hearts. You should talk about we put dopamine in here. And, it, oh, it feels yeah. so dirty just to say the word. Um, but it's not like in, in the walls of the CVICU, we do not use it as a true vasopressor. And that's partially because of the SOAP2 trial. But I think the re way we can categorize it within vasopressor is that bradycardic RCA infarct who is in cardiogenic shock who with a little bit more heart rate their stroke volume is going to come up and their blood pressure will get better and so if you're using it for chronotropy I think it's a great tool to have um, and it's an easy quick on quick off drug that just is a beautiful drug when it works but most of the time it doesn't work um, <laughs> in all truthfulness uh, the other thing is is we talked a lot about all these patients being like soaking in edema and they're like drowning in their own fluids but sometimes these people are dry um, and especially that preload dependent right ventricular failure patient volume's not always the wrong answer and generally because that little can of coke that you're going to give them that 250 cc's can take somebody from one side of the startling curve to another we do very small aliquots in the cardiac ICU just to be sure that, you know, they're like Goldilocks, like it's just too much and just right is all we're trying to aim for with them. So sometimes a little bit of fluid does go a long way. That's when the, the tool, the pulmonary artery catheter can really come in handy and when you're trying to guide fluid management in patient cardiogenic shock. If you don't have the pulmonary artery catheter where you can actually look up and just see numbers, we will do little fluid challenges and just actually literally see how they do. And that's something that you can do in a couple of minutes at the bedside. Uh, we wanted to talk about epinephrine too. So I would say epinephrine is like the ER docs ionotrope, right? I mean, we love it. You know, it's because we're seeing the typical patient population of cardiac arrest, got a bunch of epi in the field, got return of spontaneous circulation. And then the next obvious step would be to put them on an epi drip. Right, because we don't know at that point in time what caused their cardiac arrest. So there could be a lot of things. It could have been primary respiratory. It could have been septic. It could have been cardiogenic. Right, we truly don't know. Epi is a good ionotrope uh, in that it probably provides essentially the same squeeze as a dobutamine slash levofed combination. But just keep in mind that epinephrine is going to carry more of the side effects that we talked about earlier with those catechols. So your dysrhythmias, your myocardial oxygen demand, your gut ischemia, epi is, epi is going to be a greater culprit uh, than your dobutamine is. So certainly if it's epi or nothing and a really, really sick patient, of course you give them the epinephrine. Of course you do. 
But if you have options, and hopefully after this, you'll have another drug in your toolbox that you can reach to, especially in the purely diagnosed cardiogenic shock patient, I would reach for the dobutamine if that is a really feasible option for you. So up until this point, we've assumed that the cardiogenic shock patient is hypotensive. How would you approach a cardiogenic shock patient that presented in a hypertensive fashion? Yeah, so sometimes these people can be, as we talked about earlier, warm and wet. And so they come in and they're normal to hypertensive. Now, sometimes hypertension in the patient with underlying heart failure can be somebody who just looks normotensive. You know, a, a MAP of 85 sometimes is too much for these people at baseline. Um, but if you feel that they're volume overloaded, obviously the diuretic is where this comes into play. But in the event that they're truly hypertensive and you need afterload reduction to help that LV, uh, we have a couple of quick agents that we like to use in the cardiac ICU. Often times our first line agent is nitroglycerin. I think we all have a lot of comfort with nitro. Um, and it's nice because it's, it's an easy to titrate, quick onset, pretty short half-life drug that beyond a headache, most patients tolerate reasonably well. And usually we start this right around 25 mics a minute and can go up about every three to five minutes. The nurses are usually very comfortable with titrating these drugs. This is somebody that you can have just a non-invasive cuff on and transport reasonably safely with nitroglycerin in place. It's a nice venodilator um, that patients tolerate very, very well. The nitroprusside is sort of our second line uh, when things are getting real uh, in terms of hypertension that we go to. And nitride is an incredibly gratifying drug because it works so fast in, in a matter of 30 seconds. And this is why the arterial line monitoring for a patient being put on nitroprusside is essential. In fact, it is policy at UCMC for a patient on nitroprusside to have an arterial line in place. And it doesn't take a whole lot for these people to have dramatic effects from nitride. Obviously, the sort of rule of threes that we use in the administration of nitride are important. Um, you know, more than three mics, more than three days, or creatinine more than three, any of those things should be high triggers for is this the right drug for this patient because it can lead to cyanide toxicity. Beyond that, there are a couple others that we don't really go into here besides diuresis, our Natricor, and other diuretic-related agents beyond Lasix being an easy go-to that you should have in your pocket. The rest of the stuff is sort of for the realm of the heart failure cardiologist. Yeah, I will tell you guys, nitro, even the infusions are certainly within our wheelhouse. I think probably all of us ER guys are pretty comfortable with that. I broke out into a flop sweat the first patient I had on Nipride because I, the only thought I had was all of my patients are going to end up with cyanide toxicity. But I can tell you it is not uncommonly used up in the CVICU. What I would say is if you guys are rolling out to outside hospital, you've got a patient that's on a nitro drip already that's maxed out. They've been on it for four days and they've tachyphylaxed. And you're thinking about Nipride as a second line agent. You know, especially for some of the younger guys out there doing this, that would I would consider that kind of a check with me, just because I would say that that exists much more comfortably in the wheelhouse of other folks. But I think, speaking for myself personally, I should have a greater comfort level with with Nipride because it is a great drug. 
So just know how to use it safely and just consider that your second line for these patients. Up until this point, we've purely discussed the medical management of patients in cardiogenic shock. However, there's a whole nother arena of treatment of patients in cardiogenic shock, which includes the mechanical treatment. We may find ourselves in the critical transport environment transporting patients who are treated via mechanical processes for cardiogenic shock. Would you be able to briefly go over the different types of mechanical treatments we see in patients with cardiogenic shock? Yeah, this is just Paige and I's teaser to have us come back and do part two, right? Please, we want to come back. <laughs> so I, I'm actually going to let you talk about the bad patients. Do you want to yeah, do you want yeah, just yeah. like a one-liner just to kind of tease that a little bit? Because they still terrify me. So uh, good. And, and they are. They should be terrifying because <laughs> humans are supposed to have a pulse. Um, and I think that that's what makes them so in, incredibly intimidating. As If your LVAD patient is coming in and they're awake, that's, that's a great thing. Because they are so well-trained in their device and how it works. But in the event that you are going to pick up a patient that has an LVAD in place... One, um, making sure that you have somebody with you who knows how to manage an LVAD is incredibly important just because if he, he or she is unable to speak to their settings, they are incapacitated, they, you can't do anything if you don't know how to run the device. So the biggest thing, I think the take-home message is their phone number. We have a VAD coordinator on call 24-7, 365. If, if you do nothing else, don't disconnect the batteries. The last thing our team wanted to discuss real quick which I know we've had a lot of kind of offline conversations about as well, would be your, I'm going to specifically mention VA ECMO in these patients because this is the cardiogenic shock talk, right? So your venoarterial support, this is going to be literally for your shock patients that need both pulmonary and cardiac support. When should you call? So you go out to outside hospital, you think you're picking up a fairly stable cardiogenic shock patient, right? I put stable in quotes, air quotes. You get to the bedside and their index is, you know, 1.2. Their legs are like ice blocks and their blood pressure is 70 systolic. Their lungs are filled with fluid, right? They've got four plus bilateral pitting edema. That patient is essentially dying in front of you, right? You were not expecting that. You don't have an ECMO team with you. You're not sure about the hospital's cannulation capabilities. But if you guys are at the point where you're looking at that particular patient and you're saying, gosh, something in the back of my mind is saying this patient could potentially need rather urgent VA ECMO consideration, uh, we supplied, and by we, I mean Paige, supplied the numbers for the CCAT uh, team. So you have both the attending phone number in the handout and you also have the team phone, which is staff 24-7, 365. And these will be the guys on the other end of the line that help you navigate is this a patient that gets cannulated by folks at outside hospital? Is this a patient that possibly back here we start to mobilize resources prior to the patient even showing up because their need for that cardiopulmonary support is uh, is so acute? So just what, and Adam and I talked about this offline, what I would honestly do is just program those numbers into your phone, have them available, just understand that you can call it 2 a.m., you can call it 2 p.m., those lines are always staffed, and the purpose is to make sure that the right thing is getting to the patient at the right time. So there are just some guidelines for you guys to look at if you're staring at a screen with a bunch of numbers. So low cardiac index, um, low SVO2, low MAPS, high lactate, low urine output, um, cold, cold modeled extremities, 
depressed, obviously your depressed mentation, probably they're going to be intubated by that point in time. So, you know, your altered patient that gets tubed, uh, are they on inotropic agents and vasopressors already? Do they have a balloon pump? Do they have an impella? So do you walk up and say, wow, this is a really sick cardiogenic shock patient? If the answer is yes, you can consider touching base with a CCAT, folks. You're not bothering anybody. The purpose is to help. Okay. And that is the current state of cardiogenic shock in the critical care transport environment. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? No, I think the one thing we didn't spend a whole lot of time on, and I know you guys are all so, so good at this, is just making sure that it's not ischemia-driven. That, that hidden MI in transport, um, especially a post-operative patient who is acutely hypotensive, just making sure that we've ruled ischemia out um, early on really saves lives. A huge thank you to Dr. Liz Powell and Ms. Paige Barger, subject matter expert in cardiogenic shock. And please do not forget to check out the show notes for more details regarding cardiogenic shock in the critical care transport environment.